Yeah, Jay. Listening to episode, what is it, 917 about uh, role play. And it sounds like the huevos have dropped. Yeah. I love it. Telling people to stop telling people that they're having wrong, bad fun. If you say the real life fills up your days and you don't have time to play, well, midlife is the best time to start a new role playing phase. And you need a rescue. Jay's coming at you with a rescue. A role play rescue. Jay's gonna help my friend. Let's sit down to Well, hello, rescuers. My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about rediscovering our lost roleplaying hobby. As promised, this is the final episode of Season 9. The plan is to collate and respond to the call-ins that I've received over the past six weeks or so. This episode has been much more challenging for me than I expected. There are a couple of reasons. Firstly, I was finding it hard to make the time needed while school was back in full flow. When I started season eight and nine this year, we we were in lockdown and and then slowly returning to whatever passes for normality in this, I don't know, pandemic-filled island in 2021. When I started, I decided to split the calls out of episodes and deal with them as bonuses. But now that we're back to pre-pandemic expectations, with all that this entails in terms of being a high school teacher, the reality is that I'm not at home enough with adequate remaining mental energy to edit and record more episodes midweek. Thus, call-ins, they need to return to the main episodes if they're going to get aired. Secondly, I found some of the call-ins to be deeply challenging on both a personal and an intellectual level. I increasingly felt that the highly generous calls I received had helped me to such a large degree that they deserved a fuller airing. But as the weeks went by and more calls arrived and I was struggling to sit down and put together my responses, well, yeah, it built up. A big chunk of the calls aired today were inspired by episode 13, entitled Eisen's Vow. I was hugely satisfied with this episode when I recorded it because I felt that some of the dots I've been trying to connect over the past three years came together in a very big way and on a deeply personal level for me. In short, Eisen's vow resonated with me. Callers didn't seem to feel the same way. And that's a good thing. It was also, frankly, quite painful. But thank you to all the callers on that topic for your generosity and for sending me a message, because I've pondered them all, and I hope that I can find some words to respond today. That said, much of what I might say could be hugely expanded into whole episodes in their own right, so I will be keeping it brief. The remaining calls have been responses to episodes 14 through to 18, and it's worth noting that episode 19 is airing as I record this, so we might be hearing a call on episode 19, who knows. Again, I am hugely grateful to the generously shared questions and comments that come from you, the listeners. Which brings me to one last thing before I rip off the band-aid and dive into the call-ins. Thank you. 
Thank you for taking the time to listen to Roleplay Rescue. Thanks also to the many, many listeners who keep downloading the episodes and giving them a go. And of course, thank you, callers. Game on. Rescue! Right then, so let's dive into Controversy Corner. (laughs) There's a Spencer reference. I think it's useful just before we hear from the callers to restate a couple of things. So Eisen's Vow was very simple. In 1975, a guy called Sandy Eisen wrote, and I quote, I will not permit the players, people who do not know about D&D yet, to discover the rules. And I restated that. I took away the people who do not know about D&D yet, which is in brackets in the original quotation, and simplified it to make it a bit more generic. So Eisen's Vow, as I paraphrased it, became... I will not permit the players to discover the rules. And from that, I essentially went on to suggest two questions that are worth asking. Is it necessary for the player to learn the rules of the game? For me, the answer is a very clear no. I asked then, as a further question, would it be better for the player's experience of the game if they didn't learn the rules? And I rather suspect that it might. But of course, it depends on what you mean by better experience. And I think that's the point that we kind of are going to circle around now with the different calls that come in. But before we get in, just want to say once again, thank you to all the guys here who called in on this and had questions or comments or thoughts, whether they were supportive of the idea or skeptical of the idea. And I think mostly skeptical. That is fine. I really appreciated these. And as I said, while some of this is painful, I actually found it incredibly useful. Let's dive in. Rescue! Aloha, Che. Brian calling in on episode 913, and you have uncovered a true gem. And that book, Elusive Shift, has really been on my list for a while, so I should probably get around to getting it. I've heard a couple interviews and discussions about it. But I find it really fascinating that early on, especially, I, I think... As you said, the Eisen's response or his vow early on really almost seemed to draw, I don't know if you'd say it's a line in the sand, but a real distinction and the notion of the rules and the player's knowledge, or at least, you know, whether you're, you know, intentionally keeping it from them or if they just don't have familiarity. And I think in the latter case, not having familiarity may be what draws me to looking at new games, new systems, and gets me very curious because I picture playing in these games and that sense of wonder so that even if you go through it and find that the game or the system isn't for you, the experience still may be definitely positive, but but pretty exciting, even if you don't necessarily continue to play or play a campaign. And... What it did make me think of was video games in a way, and I have not really played any of the modern video games in a long time other than some dabbling, but the thing I've observed with my son, and the thing that I remember back to playing even the older games, and even going back to the old (laughs) text-based games such as Zork and others, is that some of them came with very few rules or, in fact, no rule books. Now, sure, like everything else, you can go and find information online. And even back then, there were cheat books or at least 
knowledge of cheat books, cheat codes, certain things to do were always spread around. But I do find it interesting that as he's gotten into some of the more immersive video game RPGs, he just starts playing. And I know one in particular, I encouraged him to just start. He had learned about it, and this particular was is Hades, which I still have yet to play. But anyway, he, he had heard about it and learned about it and maybe saw some videos, but had this notion that it would be very hard to play and, and difficult to figure out and learn. And I actually gave him, gave him just a little gentle push into, you know, let's get it and just start. And, and he's hooked and just watching him, in fact, discover the rules as he goes through it, I think adds to that sense of wonder. So, I mean, that may not be a great example, but that's one of the things that stood out to me is that getting that immersive experience, not having knowledge of the rules, or at least, you know, kind of discovering different things or not having knowledge of of guardrails may be a pretty important concept. And I guess the last thing to leave you with is uh, when I had looked into this, you know, the free Kriegspiel and some of the games coming out with them, whether you want to call them rules light or simplified. I, to me, I interpret a lot of that as, as the same vow in that trying to keep things, not even if you're keeping a minimal, maybe you're not keeping a minimal, but keeping keeping the players more engaged with the world and the experience than you know the rules and letting them find out the rules as they try different things. So yeah, that was a really, really, really good find you had in a uh, good episode. Cheers. Hey, Trey, Jason here. Just listen to your Eisen's Val episode. How's that different from Free Kriegspiel or the way Bronstein ran it or Dave Arneson's Blackmore before D&D came out? It, it sounds like they're all kind of the same thing, which doesn't change any of your points. And it doesn't mean that, that, that there's not value to that for that kind of exploration game and that kind of person that wants to be a method actor. I, I just wonder if this is a new idea or if this is the same thing as the free creek spiel movement that's going around and rediscovering like say the bronstein style of running a game and artisan's style of running a game and tapping into the same thing just curious take care so brian there um from have to look that up and jason from nerds rpg variety cast calling in starting us all off thanks to brian for very supportive kind of start and an interesting idea about i guess what you were talking about there was this idea that when people are new to the game it's best to get them playing and absolutely not worry about the rules and i firmly believe that that's a really important thing and that comes from my experience dealing with you know teenagers and with adults in new gaming um, i actually recently wrote a blog post about it so you know stop trying to teach the rules is kind of like a fundamental thing that i would advise but yeah um i i think that was a really useful point and Jason, of course, it's not a new idea. I was quoting Eisen from 1975. But there is a difference, I think, between where I'm at in my head and where the free Kriegspiel are. Um, and that is that the free Kriegspielers have interpreted the idea of let's play the world and not the rules and then removed most of the rules. And for me, that's not where I want to go. What I want to have is a very robust set of rules and then have them behind the screen out of sight of the players as much as possible. Now, of course, Brian makes the interesting point that over time you will learn the rules. Of course you will. You'll kind of pick stuff up. You will, absolutely. But my point, and I think Eisen's point, is that you don't go out of your way to try and cloak that 
I think Eisen was much more firm and strong about, I will not permit them to discover the rules. Um, I'm not sure I'm actually all the way there with him, as always with these ideas, when I'm asserting something out there, putting something out there into the world, I am being provocative. I am asking the question. And I think that I'm at a place where I'd like most of the rules to be behind the screen. And I think kind of getting this baggage out of the way of the players is something that would really allow for a much deeper immersion into character and immersion into other worlds, which are the two goals that I have and I shared in my last episode in 919. So anyway, thank you so much for a good start. And I really, really appreciate those thoughts. And the next up is Spencer. Hey, Chase, Spencer here. Just listening to Eisen's Val, a very interesting episode. And it got me thinking about how that concept might relate to the idea of not looking at your character sheet when playing old school D&D. I found myself in a position where I was playing OSE and, um, you know, I couldn't think what to do, and I was looking over my sheet for inspiration, and this was kind of noted by the GM uh, that I was looking at my sheet, and I probably shouldn't be doing that, <laughs> you know. Um, and yet later on in that same session, I was quite frustrated because I was told I couldn't do something because I wasn't a thief, which sort of undermined that whole concept of not looking at my sheet to look for what I could do. But it also got me thinking about Enter the Odd, as as many, many things do. But um, that idea that uh, Chris McDowell set out in putting his game together, he wanted a game which was able to be played by people who didn't know the rules or necessarily know anything about RPGs. And I I mean, the rules are such that any player would probably pick them up, pick them up within a couple of rounds of play. But, but it's just, I think there are parallels there in what Chris set out to do and what, um, Eisen is suggesting, um, you know, uh, just sort of, getting those rules out of the way, much the same way that I think I enjoy playing Call of Cthulhu. Um, And how I said in a recent message, how the basic role-playing system kind of fades into the background. I'm not suggesting that you're not, that you can play it without looking at your character sheet or anything like that, but it doesn't seem to hamper my ability to immerse myself in in the world uh, and engage with the game on, on that sort of with the fiction anyway that's enough mumbling from me i uh, just wanted to say again that i really enjoyed that episode as i have this whole season and um it's just sad that it's probably going to be coming to an end soon but um, I'm sure you've got more delights lined up for us in the future. Anyway, cheers. Take care, Che. Bye. You know, when I first heard that call, I wonder what Spencer meant when he said that bit at the end about, you know, he'll be wrapping up soon, coming to an end soon. At the time, you know, I was recording, I think, 914, 915, and I was thinking, no, it'll be fine. Be able to go for ages. 
And of course, then a couple of weeks later, school returned and turns out you're right, Spencer. It is coming to an end, at least for a while. But anyway, thank you for the call. Great call and really thought-provoking. Got me thinking a lot about the sheet. I've been thinking a lot about this tension between the players not knowing the rules and what they have on their character sheet. And I think that there's a really interesting kind of dynamic to consider there. I know that Daniel Jones, for example, has talked a lot about having as few numbers in front of the players as possible to help them kind of conceptualise their character and inhabit their character close the distance between the perception of the player and that of the perception of the character and I think there's a lot to be said for that idea I'd love to experiment with it and play with it at the same time like you I kind of like having something in front of me to reference and refer to and kind of give me those uh, little prods and I thought it was amusing you're talking about this this is fashion at the moment isn't there about don't look at your sheet like role play from from your memory you know being the character which I think is a little bit of a false dichotomy because I think actually when we are trying to role play, that is make decisions from the point of view of a character, we are not being ourselves in that moment, not entirely. And I think it's useful to have those reminders in front of you. So there's a, there's a lovely tension there. And I, I just love that you called that out. And also, yes, you know, into the odd other rules like games like that. Um, very much it's been the thrust, hasn't it, to try and get the rules out of the way of the players. I just wonder if instead of actually having the players interact with those rules very directly and, and be concerned with knowing them, we just actually have whatever rules we want, but take them away from the players to worry about. Allow the GM to do that lifting. I know it's easier said than done, but this is the thing. I'm out on the fringe here and I'm trying to push the envelope and I'm asking these kind of questions because if we could do it, I wonder if it would be more for the player more of an experience a better experience and of course we're back to that question what do we mean by a better experience anyway thank you spencer thank you also for keeping going with keep off the borderlands your podcast and i hope others will go and check it out if they haven't already because it's brilliant hi che very thought-provoking episode on kind of keeping rules from your players i can see that being very challenging and I'm curious as to exactly how you're going to do that. And what are you thinking to do about experienced players? Will you just be looking for novices? Will you filter out anyone that's played a specific system that you're looking to run? Or will you just make up your own system? It strikes me that that would perhaps be the easiest way to do it. One thing I would push back against a little bit is the idea that it's inevitable when someone knows the rules they're gonna leverage them to their advantage necessarily if we're using categories of gamer i probably land somewhere close to the the method actor i'm not massively in love with the description I certainly don't dwell on the rules unduly. Any tactical or strategic play is kind of in game terms you know, what makes sense for a, a a fighter or a swordsman, say, what makes sense in the narrative for them to do, not what bonuses is it going to get. I'm thinking tactically uh, about creating advantages such as we're going to attack a camp or we want to get one over on these folks 
clearly an ambush would be a good idea or sneaking up on someone and jumping them from behind also a good idea not because the rules dictate that they're just common strategies and sound tactical thinking would suggest that's the way to go I don't think it's too much to ask for players to perhaps dwell a little bit less on the rules however you are going to run up against players that really enjoy the rules get into the rules and sometimes I would count myself as one of those players it's um, quite a fascinating subject and cheers for putting out the episode so Colin there from the Spike Pit podcast and thank you so much for calling Colin and yeah great um it's such an honor when you call in actually because you only do that when you really have something to say and I, I massively appreciated it so I think I'm going to deal with the second bit first um in Eisen's words because I quoted Eisen uh he said quote inevitably when you are aware of the rules you will play out each situation with an eye to obtaining best odds chances of survival etc considering rules rather than the situation you're in end quote so i guess that's what you're pushing back against and you know what i i think the word inevitable again strong but i think you know hyperbole is quite typical from the era 1975 in the zines honestly i've read so many of them now yeah inevitability perhaps not but i think common i think it's very common that people who are aware of the rules start playing out situations with an eye to obtaining the best result and the odds and the chances and that was certainly was the case in the late 70s and early 80s if i read um gary allen fine's uh, shared fantasy book for example which is a sociologist look at a couple of gaming groups and the kind of stuff in the zines as well you know this is very much the way a lot of people play so Hmm. Uh, yeah, maybe things have changed a lot, but my experience tells me not so much as we think. And um, so, I don't know, maybe. Your mileage may vary on that, I suppose. Um, so his motivation for bringing behind the screen being, you know, then they can start thinking about it from a character's perspective, the perception of the character, what the character actually knows, and not thinking about mechanism, which I think has some value. I still think that has some value. So, hmm, don't know. On the how are we going about it, the kind of players I would look for, blah, 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 and also whether I would, um, you know, what rules would I use? I'm starting, I have started, and I'm starting with um, hacking around thick games that I'm already comfortable with and like playing. Um, but of course, it doesn't matter what rules I'm using because the players don't need to know them. And they might recognize stuff and they might think they have all the answers, but I think in the end, I want their focus to be elsewhere. Which brings me back to a point that Daniel Jones keeps making over and over whenever I speak to him. And that's the one of, we have to have a chat as player and GMs. We have to have this conversation as a group about what we're looking for. And if we are looking to have this kind of immersive character immersion, world immersion uh, kind of game, then we have to perhaps consider different methods. And I'm not saying that other methods are wrong. I'm just not. I'm absolutely fine. However you want to play, that's fine. This is how... I want to approach play and I know I'm out on the edge and I'm maybe I'm not going to find anybody you know that's absolutely fine I just feel like I can't carry on doing things the way I've been doing them that just don't work for me even though that's the mainstream you know everyone's fine with that other than me it seems that way sometimes so I don't know I'm going to ask players if they want to have this experience and we're going to try and experiment and I'm going to muck about really and it might not work 
And I'm kind of comfortable with the idea that it might not work. And I guess that's pretty much my answer to that. So a lot of unknowns, that's kind of the nature of creativity, I think. And I'm I'm going to lean into it. Thanks so much for calling, Colin. Game on. Hey, Jay. Paul here. Uh, you will not be surprised to hear me calling in regarding episode 913, Eisen's Vow. So, yeah, holy paternalism, Batman. So I think part of my reaction to, to this concept isn't necessarily the ideas behind the play. There's just something about how it's expressed. It's, no, 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 we mustn't touch daddy's rule books because you can't handle it. You can't hand, have fun if, if you actually know what's going on. And I, I don't know. So... As I've been reading, you know, so many of these modern games and, you know, working to get myself back in the hobby, you know, there's this feel that, you know, so much of what was wrong uh, back when I was, you know, playing games in the 80s and 90s was this fear of the meta, you know, that if we acknowledged at any point that we were playing a game, we were doing something wrong, we were failing role-playing, uh, and so, you know, there, and, you know, you, you tie this into the gamist approach and you have the meta, uh, sort of subverting any attempt at role-playing, but here, you know, with this, uh, sort of other worlds immersion program that you've been this describing, it's, it's something even more fundamental. If you, you know, acknowledge the fact that you're, imagining something the imagination is a failure and you know i think we're stronger than that now i'm not speaking for everyone here but uh you know i think it's important when we're playing at the table to have the ability to shift between different levels to be able to say that you know this isn't just i'm going to stab this dude in the kidneys because that's what my guy will do to you know sort of the exterior level of you know i'm not going to stab this guy in the kidney because that sucks that's a bad story that's not what we're all at the table here to do and, you know, being able to shift from, you know, sort of a, a fiction sandwich almost. So you're in the world, you know, you're, something's happening. And then, you know, you step out for a moment to do a resolution and then you step back into the fiction. You know, maybe that doesn't work for everyone, but I, I think that is closer to what I'd like to strive for in my gaming than, you know, some sort of, you know, complete isolation from the mechanisms of play. Uh, recently, uh, well, I guess it wasn't quite recently. It was a couple years back. Robin Laws was working on a a an Android app or I, iPad app. I can't recall exactly which was meant to implement the mechanisms of play. And he was so enthusiastic because you know you could come up with all these you know realistic or complicated resolution mechanisms. And, you know, it would take the load off the game master. It would take the load off the players. But why would I want to sort of cede authorial control to, you know, some hidden algorithm? 
And to the same uh, to the same point, why would I as a player you know, want to step so far back from the game that I can't engage with the world at all except by petitioning the game master to give me information? I think that a goal I'd like to strive for is having everybody at the table so in sync and in tune with the world that if someone comes up with a detail, it makes sense. and Everyone can agree that this is the way the world is. So rather than, you know, viewing, uh, viewing the, the game world through a glass darkly, you know, you know, perhaps we have to step back for a moment and look at our dice and roll them. But at the end of the day, the fiction is an agreement that I am reaching with everybody else at the table. It's something we're striving for together rather than passively consuming. So, Paul, thanks so much for calling. And I guess this was the first call where being accused of paternalism stung, I have to say. <laughs> um, I Okay, so thank you. Um, this is a really generous call because I think what you do is express what you want from your game. Um, and that's great. I think if I'm helping you to figure out what you want and definitely what you don't want, that's great. I absolutely appreciate that we're different. And I don't know what else to say, really, apart from I don't want the player isolated from the game. There's nothing wrong with game. I love game. You know, I just feel like as a player, I will be deeper in that world and deeper in that character if I don't have to constantly click out and mess around with rules and then click back in. And that's what I'm offering as Jim. I'm offering to take that load from a player. But of course, if the player wants that load, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. As I said several times in episodes recently, this isn't going to be for everybody. What I'm talking about is really fringe, really fringe of a fringe of a fringe, right? So I'm out there on the edge trying to push the boundary of immersion. And if people don't want to go there, that's okay. I just, I'm not making anybody do anything differently. I just invite, that's all. And so if it feels like I'm somehow trying to control people's experience of the game in some kind of dictatorial, paternalistic, negative way, I'm sorry you got that impression. That's really not what I'm after. And by the way, I wasn't entirely sure what you meant about this idea that you know, back in the day, there was some kind of meta was bad. I, I never had an experience of meta as bad. In fact, really, until very recently, for me, very gamist, very meta, very happy. But I wasn't getting into the world and I wasn't getting into character. And I kind of want to go there. Um, so that's the difference. So blathering response, I suppose. But, you know, you made me think. So thank you so much for it. I really appreciate it. And of course, you weren't alone in not quite coming from where I'm coming, which is great. Hi, Jay. It's Graham here from Gaming from the First Age. Hope you're well. Just listen to episode 913, Ison's Vow. Do you know, I expect that that episode will get quite a lot of call-ins. I'm just saying, I think it might. 
I, I myself really enjoyed the episode and I was reflecting on my experience of only yesterday when I went to Zero Latency, which is a virtual reality uh, gaming environment in Nottingham. Uh, you go into a room, it's a large warehouse effectively with a portable virtual reality set on your head. Um, you get earphones so you can hear everyone around you and you get a gun, which you, uh, which is, if it's a virtual gun, which uh, has got several modes of play. And then you're immersed in some settings and you and your fellow players wander around an environment uh, completely unrestrained, well, pretty much, because of course there are rules. Uh, in that game. Not very many, mostly related to health and safety actually. Don't get too close to the walls, don't get too close to other people, uh, we, we don't want anyone to get hurt really, but we do want you to be torn to pieces by zombies or um, artificial intelligent uh, robot AI slaves. That'd be fine. Um, you can die, in fact you can die several times as far as they're concerned, that's great. And I really enjoyed it, it was a wonderful experience and I really felt it was me there and we came out sweating, you know, absolutely sweating. It was so real, the way the environment moved around you. We were going up elevators. We weren't. We were standing in a, you know, we knew, part of us knew, a small part of us cognitively realised we weren't actually in an, in, in an elevator at all. We were just standing in a warehouse, you know, but it was wonderful. And although I had a call sign above me because you could say who you wanted to be, mine was Gram. The thrill was, without any rules, it was just me, actually, well, and my mates, fighting zombies or rogue AI robots. So that's an experience. It's not a, it wasn't a role-playing game, but it was a drop-down into a very real world, or so it seemed to me, without very many rules and with just me exploring and experiencing it. Now, the only other time I think I'd get behind Ison's Vow is if the actual rules of the role-playing game were, I don't know, let's say counterintuitive, or maybe even jarring to the play experience, that what I'm trying to imagine in my head, the game is effectively getting in the way. And I think that's what Ison's trying to get at, really. It's, it, it's, it's slowing you down. It's, it's pulling you away from that completely, I'll use the word, immersive experience. I have to say, ironically, I can't think of very many sets, apart from perhaps the one that comes to mind is Gygax's very own AD&D First Edition, much closer to 1975 than now. In reality, if I can use that phrase, I wonder if there's a noble confusion to Eisen's vow. The dopamine rush of any first and early experience tangled with the game aspects of the activity. To my mind, system matters in a role-playing game activity, because the clue is in the name. If the system is half-decent, let's be honest, most of them are, the game is a powerful enabler and definer of character, informing decisions on action and consequence. The rules empower that separation of self and other, whilst also providing the delights of the game activity. For me, Playing a role-playing game is about simultaneously operating at two levels at the same time. Well, all right, perhaps at the speed of thought, switching between two modes. One enriches the other and in fact doubles the experience. So I posit 
that Eisen was simply wrong. As purist as it may seem, his vow, in fact, restricts the role-playing game experience. Without the rules, play can of course still be fun, but it misses what role-playing games are all about. That synchronous cognitive experience of both being viscerally part of another world through another's eyes and engaging in a separated experience in using the tools of the game to drive that experience forward. Now, as I have highlighted, in 2021, and I suspect increasingly beyond, Ison's vow is finding perhaps a new expression in different types of game, where the self can explore worlds even without having to create them in the imagination. There are, of course, other creative expressions which I think would better suit the desire to free the self from anything except the experience of being in other worlds, such as um, improv theatre, perhaps, uh, interactive storytelling. There are rich avenues to travel down. For role-playing games, there is a what I would describe as a delicious dichotomy that delivers a unique interaction between our imaginations and the game that shapes the experience. Thanks again for the episode and look forward to many more. Cheers, Jay. And cheers, Graham. Thanks very much for your call. Really appreciate that. Gaming from the first age there. Um, First age himself. I love it, even though we know your name now. Um, Okay, I'm joking. Yeah, okay. So what I heard was, well, you don't want a role-playing game anymore then, do you, Che? Go and do some improv theatre or go and do some, you know, interactive writing. Go away from our hobby. You're nothing to do with us anymore. And, okay, maybe you're right. I don't know. (laughs) I think that we are actually talking at cross-purposes here. Because, for me, the role-playing game, having the rules is really great and important. And I think as a player, I need to know that they're there. And I think as a player, I would like to be switching out of, of mode enough to roll dice... But what I don't want is what happens so often in games, role-playing games, where actually, to be very honest with you, in a three-hour session, I spend two hours dealing with rules and only a small portion of the time immersed in the character and in the world, perhaps even less than that, in fact. If this is this glorious switching that you're talking about, my experience of that glorious switching is mostly spending my time dealing with rules and talking to people about mechanical things and, you know, stats and numbers and all of that, and actually very little time immersed and, you know, in character and in world. And so, I don't know, I just think actually we have this overinflated view of how much fiction we are getting in our gaming, or at least I have noticed that people around me aren't spending as much time in fiction as they think they are the main thing was even though what i heard i I know that's not what you meant okay um but this was a one of those difficult calls for me because it really made me think and you're right i I really liked that switching between two modes of being um what i think i'm wanting to do if i'm honest is is up the amount of time that i'm in character and in in other world and reduce the amount of time that I'm dealing with mechanism and I don't know I just want to experiment with it I think the thing is that in the modern game the mainstream game we just take it for granted that the way it is is the way it's got to be 
And I'm asking, does it have to be that way? Of course, maybe it does, and I'm wrong. But I'm not going to find out if I don't go and experiment. At least that's the way I feel. Your mileage may vary. Thank you, Graham. Game on. Hi, Che. This is Paul calling in. And I'm calling in to let you know that I am officially back to the table. Uh, Buying role-playing game books and listening to podcasts uh, were things that have kept me connected to the hobby in the decade and a half that I wasn't actually playing. A few months back, I decided that I wanted to start supporting some of the podcasts that have been producing the content that has kept me going through some tough times. And I wanted to join the Roleplay Rescue Patreon in particular because of its relentlessly positive, hopeful, and supportive message that we all can, in fact, get back to the table, no matter how long we've been away. Since beginning to participate in the the Roleplay Rescue community, I've uh, played my first game since 2003, uh, run by Arlen Walker of the Live from Pelham's Wasteland podcast, who posted the game on your Discord server. And this past week, I finally took the plunge and put myself on the hook to run three games in three systems that I had never played before but have been wanting to try for years. Uh, Jason Connerly of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast podcast, who I also met on your Discord server, played in two of them, and Arlen played in another. Uh, It was definitely a bit of a trial by fire, uh, but gaming now seems possible again in a way that it hasn't in a very long time. So, Che, I would like to say thanks to you and for everything you're doing with Roleplay Rescue. Thank you, Paul. You know, I wasn't going to say anything, but I just want to say, well done, mate. Welcome back to the table. And thank you for such a generous call. Take the time to tell me that you're back. Because, honestly, I'm very close to wondering whether this is worthwhile. And, well, you just told me it is. Thanks, man. Rescue! Hey, Jason here. Just want to say, really enjoyed Roleplay Rescue 916 with Peter Laws. Great discussion there. As always, wonderful content. Keep up the great work. H.A. Paul here calling in on episode 914, the Towards Primeval Fantasy episode with Daniel. And I know this might be a bit of a fraught call in here, and I want to 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 lead with Daniel's closing point, which is fantastic, that understanding and exploring preferences is great. And having, you know, this wide variety of different game systems and settings and approaches that allow us to find the style or styles of play that we enjoy is just great. And I really love hearing these in-depth discussions uh, from people whose goals are not my own, because first of all, that lets me understand my own goals in gaming better, but it also lets me understand where other people are coming from, perhaps help them achieve their goals at the table, and perhaps appreciate them in a way where I can try for similar ends myself. So with that said, uh, there were a number of, of, of things in the conversation that struck me. And, and 
so so there's sort of this this goal of you know looking for the unblemished imagination of a child but on the other hand being certain that we don't pretend too hard or pretend the wrong thing so there's an other world and it needs to be other but it can't be too different from ours so it's it's a search for a very specific and hedged version of possibility and and then the idea of powers being superpowers and if they're superpowers they change the world well from just a speculative fiction standpoint that's the whole point if a power doesn't change the world where's the interest so a while back in uh the ken and robin talk about stuff podcast uh, ken height was talking about a world he was running set in the hellenistic period where the characters uh, the players characters were among the few people people in this world with truly exceptional powers and much to their you know shock the players discovered that these powers were you know strategic uh, world changing levels which meant that governments were taking an interest in them and that affected the nature of play uh, perhaps that is the enemy of a certain type of immersion but i think it leads to potentially really interesting consequences in play if you if you embrace that and and once again i am not criticizing the sort of uh, stated goal of the type of games that are being discussed in the primeval fantasy episode as something to attempt or the idea of that as a program it's just interesting to sort of place these in the in the perspective of the many different types of games that are possible so another thing that struck me is I'm always a bit perplexed when lethality is put forward as a goal for games that aim at immersion as as one of their ends so like what could be more immersion breaking than death unless you're actually going to off the player when they make a bad choice so even though there's an attempt to break away from the wargaming roots of the hobby uh, keeping this focus on combat seems somewhat at odds uh, with that so, uh, as described, this uh, sort of approach to gaming that that uh, has has been discussed in this episode that you've been sort of exploring sound surprisingly close to a fiction first game, with the caveat that you aren't allowed to call it fiction because that might break the fiction. Uh, and it actually seems similar in a lot of ways to diceless approaches, such as those in the Amber Diceless system, uh, which was more recently updated in uh, Lords of Gossamer and Shadow. So the ideal of game mastering seems to be almost something of a deist approach, where the clockwork is wound up at the start. Uh, you, the players, can't see the hand, but everything follows the rules perfectly, be, which is interesting because you're also not allowed to actually know the, those rules that govern the world. 
And the last piece that caught my attention was sort of this, this idea of saying no to the character's actions for the player's own good. And I know I keep going back to, to Ken and Robin talk about stuff here, but when I'm mowing the lawn, I tend to listen to both your podcast and Ken and Robin's. So it's very interesting to compare the approach discussed in this Primeval Fantasy episode with the one that Ken Height was uh, talking about in the episode I was listening to just before, where he's ranting about, oh no, uh, you know, we have to put constraints on the characters because otherwise they might actually accomplish things. So these are very different ends. These are very different approaches, all as I've uh, tried to be very clear, perfectly valid. Uh, it's just uh, very interesting to me to see how many different directions this can be taken. Hi, Jay and Paul. Uh, thanks, Paul, for your questions and musings on the episode. I always welcome conversations like these, and I can answer what I think I understand about what you said, and you can always reply if you like. Uh, regarding your first section on Otherworld Immersion, I may not understand your first point here of we must be careful to not pretend too hard or pretend the wrong thing, uh, which then led to the discussion of power changing the world. So if I understand where you're going with this, uh, this was my fault in saying change the world when I should have clarified damage the subgenre. So based on the assumption that the group playing this is all on the same page about what we want, including the subgenre, which in this case is a primeval type of setting like I've described, then there are elements which must be avoided lest we start damaging it. That is, we don't want anything like a World of Warcraft type setting where magic is ubiquitous and even mundane, where we can go to their Walmart stores and buy magical armor and swords and potions and so forth, uh, because this pulls us away from the subgenre that we actually want, which is part of our goal. And related to this is the issue of lethal combat. I think I understand what you mean here. My goal is not to have a disproportionate focus on combat, but to increase the feeling of relatability to the human fear of getting gacked by axes and getting brained by trolls with their clubs. We really don't want a miniature wargaming experience of you take 140 points of damage from the giant and then brush off the dust and go gallivanting. So through method and mechanic, we can hope to have a more relatable experience of combat, making it something to be feared and avoided, except when great need arises. I'm unclear about the next section you mentioned about a deistic model or players not knowing the rules. I'm not against uh, players knowing the rules, uh, but there's a power in achieving the unity of perspective between the players and their characters we want when their focus is on real-world events and descriptions rather than numbers or algorithms or charts. 
we absolutely want the players to achieve great and even unexpected things. And we're staunchly anti-railroading. I'm not saying you were suggesting that this method was pushing toward railroading, by the way. Uh, But saying no to the players would only be in service to preserving the specific other world uh, subgenre experience we want, which I've said is very anti-World of Warcraft and anti-comic book superhero fantasy. And that is established long before the campaign starts with conversations with the players. And to address your first point last, uh, which is clear where we have a strong agreement, the task of finding out exactly what we want as gamers is pure gold and absolutely worth everyone's time. I'm still shocked at people's resistance to doing so, even on the most basic of levels. Proceeding as if where they landed, which is usually by accident, honestly, is the only way to play. I'd add to that that once we've fleshed out the specific thing that our groups are after and we've had honest um, and sometimes long conversations with these groups, that we should consider the best way to get closer to those goals. My own conclusion is that wanting something without finding and implementing the best tools to get there won't really help much. Anyway, uh, thanks a lot for your feedback and questions, Paul. Um, I may have misunderstood uh, some of your points, so uh, feel free to reply if you like. I always uh, enjoy healthy discussions that lead us to better places. Thanks. H.A. Spencer here, Um, combat-only gaming. Now, um, you correctly predicted that my first thought was, well, isn't that just skirmish gaming? But um, it brought to mind the first session of um, Sword and Scoundrel, uh, the game that um, Arlen Walker was running. In that first session, we had a little time before the the adventure started i think um the other players were kind of slightly late to the party so arlen ran me through some one-on-one combat now the the combat in this system is quite granular you um you can employ different techniques you have to account for how much effort you're putting into each cut and thrust and defensive maneuver now in that situation I was facing off against a guard and um, uh, yeah, things went really well for me, not for the guard. I left him bleeding out. But the thing was, I couldn't actually leave him there bleeding out. I felt compelled to patch him up and, you know, leaving him in the hope that he might survive to see another day. And I thought to myself, well, you know, even in the combat, I couldn't help myself from role-playing. But as you point out, you know, is there really a line 
between the combat and the role play? Isn't it all just part, you know, elements of the same thing? All elements of role play, I guess. Yeah, real food for thought there. Great episode. Cheers. Hey, Che, Paul here calling in regarding your episode 917 on combat only role playing. So I have to say, I am always more interested in discussions about uh, that, that try to sort of justify extending the boundaries of role-playing rather than contracting it. So rather than arguments that something isn't role-playing, I'm, I'm much more interested in arguments that something is. And so, you know, like this either... Uh, you know, group activity of just, uh, you know, running a combat between a fighter and a goblin in a an arena somewhere, uh, if, or, you know, running that yourself as a solo game, you know, is a, a very interesting thing to compare against something uh, like a solo RPG, like Thousand Year Old Vampire, which is almost purely uh, narrative, almost writing prompts, where you uh, roll dice to to move between different prompts and are sort of deciding, you know, what happens and what memories no longer fit in your in your brain as you move through this these centuries of existence. So, is combat only role playing? Role playing. Absolutely, as is no combat role-playing. But I, I, the one thing that caught my attention in the show particularly was a moment where you said that certain things were just narrative detail. And, and so I think that, that sort of distinction between rules and narrative is an interesting one uh, to think about when approaching one's personal metaphysics of the game. So there is an approach to role-playing where only the things that the rules bless as real are real, and everything else is somewhat lesser. And this is uh, sort of an encounter to the idea that the story, you know, these these... The, the ideas of the fiction, the worlds, the, the things that people are saying to each other are what are actually important. And every so often there will be recourse to the dice, to the rules, to randomness to decide how things go. So in short, if you want to shiv a goblin in the kidneys, embrace it. Hi, Che, it's Barney. A really quick message about combat-only gaming. I thought it was a great episode, a great defense of combat only. But in a way, the combat was secondary when I think in terms of the whole manifesto idea. So I think in, in that episode, you really present that a bit of a manifesto because what you do is really talk about possibilities. It's not rules and constraints and this kind of thing it's all about doing what you enjoy getting the most out of it and trying to think of as many 
um, nuances and permutations as possible. So that, I think, is fantastic. Hey, Trey, Jason, just listened to episode 918. We've discussed the Infinite Game before. I, I don't think there's a need to go into the reasons that people don't play that game. I think that's been covered. I guess the question is how to facilitate it. And I, I do think you need a group. You, you need at least a couple people that are interested in, in, in continuing it. One doesn't have to be the GM, as in there doesn't have to be a dedicated GM, because the key to the infinite game is the persistent world, right? No matter what the party is, no matter what even the genre is, at the time, it's that persistent world. So you could rotate GMs and, and play the infinite game. You, you know, people don't have to stay in the same role, but you have to have people dedicated to the idea of that persistent world. And and you need a group that'll do that and is willing to not game hop. On the other hand, you, you know, if, if, if I'm going to expand my mind a little bit, you as the GM could always play an infinite game because if your world is a persistent world and all the games you run are part of that persistent world, you know, the the American Old West game you run is that world during that time period and the fantasy game you run is that world during an earlier age. And, you know, so effectively, and all the groups you run using the different systems, your, your Mithras group is playing in that same world and your Pathfinder 2 group is playing in that same world, you're running the infinite game. So a single GM could run the infinite game with rotating groups of players that don't even know they're part of an infinite game, don't even know they're in a persistent world. But I think it would be more enjoyable and more satisfying if you had a couple players that were in on the idea. If you think about it, this is what Michael Chicago Wiz has been doing for many, many years. He has his world, and whether it's a war game or an RPG, whether it's his wife or whether a different group, or various groups over the years, he's he's been playing that infinite game in his world. Um, but I agree with you; it'd be better with multiple people, not just to switch the GM role. That's not important, although it's always an option. But just because, obviously, you can share the excitement and you can share that exploration, you can share that joy with if you have other players. Where if you're just running the continual world with a host of temporary players in there that don't understand what you're doing you don't have anybody to share those those highs with right but yeah i would definitely be interested in the infant game i'm sure we could figure a way to make schedules work and the good thing about the infant game is if you're not there every game or every time it the world's a persistent world so it's it's not a problem so you know once you get it figured out let me know we'll see if if we can't figure something out schedule wise i very much would like to be in Longer term, which I and I realize the infant game may not. It, it's a, a long term game of its own. It's just not a long term game like a Pathfinder Adventure Path kind of long term game, right? But yeah, I would be very interested in doing that. So let, let me know as we progress. And as far as the negative calls and the people that don't get it, I mean, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make them drink. I I think you're pretty clear in in your explanation of it. So it it's just not for everybody. And I think one of the problems with that is that people are so bound to all these new systems they're buying and all the new games they're buying, you know, they feel obligated to play these things. And I think there's peer pressure to play all these different games. If 
if you go if you get amongst a group of other role players and they're talking about all the games they've been playing, so oh, what have you played most recently? And you're like, well, I only play Pathfinder, right? W- whatever the game is, doesn't matter what the game is. But no, Pathfinder's the only game I play, or Mithras is the only game I play. Then you're going to seem less exciting to them. So I think there's a peer pressure to play multiple things. The neat thing with the Infinite Game is you can play all those new systems and all that new stuff you buy. You can incorporate it in that persistent world. Now, you might have to modify things some and change things around, but if there are new games, new mechanics and mechanisms, you could definitely try those out, and that wouldn't break anything. Just thought. But yeah, the most important thing is don't, don't be discouraged. The people that get it are going to get it. The people that don't are not. There are going to be a lot more people that don't get it because that's not what they're looking for. And that's okay. We're not all looking for the same thing. And that doesn't mean we can't be friends or anything else. But, yeah, I would be very interested in that persistent world. So, anyhow, talk to you later. Hey, Jay, Spencer here. And another great episode about the Infinite Game. But I wonder um, if this kind of apparent preference for short-term games and one-shots is not a matter of necessity rather than an actual preference. I mean, I myself am aware of ongoing campaigns that I could get myself involved in where I'm able to commit uh, with any kind of um, sort of long-term foresight um but uh yeah yeah and if in fact i am involved in an ongoing call of cthulhu game which arguably rather than a campaign is a some scenarios that are sort of knitted together because of returning pcs and um i think you could probably argue that winning a game of call of cthulhu was surviving a game of Call of Cthulhu. But, um, yeah, I digress. Um, I do think it is about, you know, the way our lives are, the difficulty in committing to campaigns, um, you know, ongoing uh, long-term play, um, rather than a a preference for sort of short-term goals. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean... This this goes for my feelings about... I, I think I'd much prefer playing in person with people and I think I lose a lot out of playing online games. But that is all that is really available to me at the, at the current time. So, you know, we have to make the best of what's available. Take care. An ongoing barrage of amazing calls. So thanks to everybody who had something to say um, about the combat stuff, first of all. Um, that was all good. I just didn't think there was much I could add. They were great comments, and I really appreciate them. And um, Barney, manifesto. Now on to the Infinite Game. And I really appreciate this messages from Jason and from um, Spencer as well. So thanks, guys. And I'll deal with Spencer's first. I think, um, yeah, I think that, yeah, I think a lot of people do accept... Uh, very finite games based on circumstances. But all I'm suggesting is we don't necessarily have to view our circumstances as limiting the game. The game could be played with an open table. Whoever comes on the given time can, you know, the time and the place when it's happening 
turn up and play and the game happens. It doesn't have to be the same players. It doesn't have to be the same um, group at all. And it could be played very infrequently. It could be that we just decide we're going to play when we can, set up times. And it could be the same players. It could be different players. I don't know. But the point is we don't have to be limited by some preconceived idea about what a campaign looks like. I think at the moment there's this tendency to think of role-playing scenarios as defining the boundary of the game. And what I'm suggesting is it doesn't have to be bound at all. We could decide just to play for the sake of playing whenever we can play. And I know that might sound simplistic, but it is about, I think, accepting our limitations in our lives, but not necessarily letting that leak all over the game, if that's an appropriate metaphor. Anyway, Jason, thank you. Yes, I was actually quite mindful of um, the idea of kind of the persistent world. I think it's probably the where I got to myself in terms of how infinite gameplay might work, you know, that you bound it around the world. As I was just mentioning, I think, you know, you could have completely different players, characters, um, doing different things within the world, and then that world could be the thing that binds it together. And, of course, that world doesn't have to be one world as in, like, one fantasy world. It could be a multiverse of different places and locations all bound together. And this is where the whole using portals and other stuff like that comes in for me, that you could actually have a game where you move uh, through different genres, through, dif- uh, through different kinds of places, through that metaphysic of the portal to another part of the universe or multiverse. And that's what excites me. Um, that there's just this thing of we want to play. What are we playing today? Let's play, let's play, you know, let's get together. Um, but I'm wittering. So I'm going to have the last call, which is from Brian, and then we'll wrap it all up. Aloha, Che. Brian here. Wanted to call in on episode 918, The Return to the Infinite Game. This was a really interesting topic. And I am i was actually first trying to remember if you brought this up before. One, because it seems incredibly relevant. And I cannot say that I was thinking specifically of this. But when you discussed it, it resonated pretty deeply with me. And so part of me thought you may have actually referenced this in an earlier episode. Uh, if I'm if I'm wrong, you'll just have to maybe cut this out. You could leave it in. Just kidding. But I've come across this book, and I like many others, as you as you talked about. I've only read the first bit. I had a copy from a library and didn't get very far into it. Maybe even a quarter of the way through or further. But the way that I came across it was referenced by others. Really, when talking about, and I hate to say this, kind of politics or international security struggles, and for me, my approach was was trying to you know trying to move some of those discussions and trying trying to keep this not uh, specifically political, but maybe in the abstract. But those discussions or negotiations or even conflicts from the finite to the infinite realm and. It does have a parallel to role-playing, but meaning that instead of entering things as a more traditional zero-sum approach to security issues, politics, and, and obviously games, looking at it as an infinite game in that you know the goal is to keep playing. And I guess one would argue, uh, especially when we used to deal with nuclear proliferation and nuclear security, um, that if your goal is not to keep living, 
it is very difficult to understand why you're playing. And, and, and I'm, I'm talking at a larger level, maybe not specific games or if we're sitting down to play a war game, but more of a, you know, as an ongoing, let's say, encounter or an ongoing negotiation. So the reason I really liked when you talked about this was I found that I've been tending to think about games this way and in more than just in the sense that obviously if you're running a campaign even if it tends to be dangerous and depending on the manner you play or the genre things will happen things may even happen to player characters but the idea is that you want to keep the campaign going so you may iterate on that you may take the characters to higher level you may change it out but thinking beyond maybe just specifically a campaign more broadly the infinite game of sitting down to play so that even if you change the setting a little bit change the rule system a little bit with your group you're still playing now that may get away from perhaps your vision of the infinite game and the, and the world and i don't i don't know that i would say that we disagree because i would say obviously if i was if i was able to choose or design you know a perfect gaming group we probably would play different games, but being able to try one large campaign, you know, an infinite game in that sense and, and see where that gets us, where that exploration gets us, I do think would be a really, really good and perhaps even ideal setting. But the other thing that this made me think of and what it connects to is I'm finally catching up on your blog posts and you had one from a few days ago, playing for the sake of playing. And this resonated with me very well because in thinking about in thinking about you know playing in the infinite game and, and sitting down to play and trying to remove some barriers, and you even say this in the beginning, so I mean it's not really my connection. I think you're you're pretty good at, at bringing this out, is trying to get to the point where you sit down and play. You know, you say, why don't we just show up and play anymore? And I think about this now all the time. Because every time, other than the logistics of organizing and then obviously distances, time zones, etc., when I remember playing even younger, and we had more time, so obviously that's in your favor, but I remember lots of times sitting down and just playing. And I think I talked about this recently on an episode. We revived, you know, our AD&D game sessions almost by just ripping out the book of layers after a while and then inventing stuff from there. But it was kind of enough that we said, hey, we have this. There's no excuses for us to sit down and roll some characters and play. Or, and I think we did this at one point with Nighthawks, which is a little bit more difficult, Star Frontiers. But we just said, hey, we wanted to play. And perhaps because we were younger, perhaps we weren't too worried about maybe the feel of fa- fear of failure if you're running the game and the amount of prep you may have to do. Maybe that got in the way, but I, I think you get to some really critical points and, and maybe not everyone looks at this in the same way, but they may not have to because I think when you combine these and you talk about, hey, the sake of playing is the infinite game and maybe trying to think about that and the liberation that you talk about with getting to the game sessions and obviously there's still some preparation, you know, players and game masters and, you know, you're your, your, your mileage, as it were, would vary with your gaming group. But I think it's a really good connection to make. And so those are some of the things I'm thinking about. And I had a nice break. 
<laughs> to actually record a long message before I go into a, a later afternoon meeting today. Uh, so yeah, hopefully this is useful, but uh, I, I, I definitely resonate with you. And I guess the last point, which I thought of a little while ago and was thinking about this in terms mainly, the, the one example I use would be DCC Dungeon Crawl Classics, that the way that I've approached it and played some sessions Definitely haven't played as a campaign, and because of the lethality, and, and it's, it's notorious, obviously, with the funnel and killing characters, I would say that in each session, I've just felt less concerned with that outcome than I have in any other system. And, and it could be because it's played up a little bit, and as I said, it's notorious, and perhaps with that mindset, that that's part of the enjoyment. Obviously, not everyone goes in to just have their characters die. But what I've found is I would be eager to return, and I have, uh, albeit online, with several of those folks, to play in other games. And I think about that as playing to play the infinite game, that the rules don't matter so much, even the characters and the deaths. And in this case, the setting doesn't matter as much. It's more the play and the interaction. And I find it a little bit less stressful in approaching it that way. So that, that's one example that at least I found that it resonates with me. And when I think about playing, those are the things I think about rather than specific adventures, prepping certain things, what rule set or subset of the rules to use. So anyway, there you go. Cheers, man. And so that's it for Season 9. Thank you once again for listening to this mahoosive call-in collection. And thank you also to all the callers, some with multiple things to say. It is appreciated, even when it's sometimes hard to hear. But your messages make a difference to me. They encourage me, they challenge me, they invoke my emotions, they, they force me to consider other viewpoints. And most of all, they let me know that the work I'm doing in this RPG scene, it's valued in some way. Thank you for being generous enough to call in. I know it's not easy to record your voice and share it. Massively appreciate it. Thank you. Will there be a season 10? I think so. Maybe you'll have to let me know if you want one. I certainly hope so. I do have things to say, but I also need a break. I need time to think and to regroup. It might need a week, it might need a month, maybe longer, I don't know right now. But I intend to return. In my head, I think there are things to talk about around being an anxious gamer, both player and GM. I think there's masses to share about my journey off the edge of the page into infinite play. And I think I have stuff to explore around getting the rules out of sight. And that's just for starters. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to continue working through the Roleplay Rescue Patreon, sharing GM Journal episodes week by week, but I am going to go dark here on Anchor for a little while. So, until next time, thank you. Massive thanks to TJ Drennan for the music this season. Thanks to the Roleplay Rescue patrons over on patreon.com slash rpgrescue who fund and support the show. And thanks again to you the listener, for tuning in. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. Game on.
H A Jason here. Interesting episode. Uh, Role play rescue nine nineteen. Um, yeah, I I think there are more people that are interested in what you are than maybe you think there are, but. And, and I think, given the chance to play in a long term game in a persistent world, people would. I think they would see the draw to that once they did it, once they're lured away from the the, the new shiny and, and chasing after all the new games and systems and worlds that that are being pushed on them by the market. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think there are those of us that, that are interested in the same journey you are. Um, anyhow, I will... Look forward to the next episode, and I hope you're doing well, and I'll talk to you soon.